Let's, uh, let's say a prayer real quick, and then, and then you can find your ways to your seats, but we probably should get started lest we run out of time. Let us pray. Lord, be merciful to your people. Fill us with your gifts and make us always eager to serve you in faith, hope, and love. Grant this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. All right. Good morning to you all. How's everything going? Good. We've, so now we've had another little bit of a hiatus on Colossians. We probably should spend a little time reviewing. Um, but maybe the right thing to do first is to ask, are there any uh, sort of outstanding questions? Your questions don't have to be exceptional questions, but are there st- any questions which remain that we haven't answered sufficiently so far? Anything from Colossians so far or anything else? I, don't, I, don't, I can't guarantee that I'll answer anything else, but you can ask anyways. Okay. All right. Well, great. Then hopefully everybody has a copy of the handout, which picks up at Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. So that's where we're going to begin today. And um, once again, I give you this, uh, this sort of re- review paragraph. We have this great uh, this, this coincidence that now in the divine service, we're reading Colossians for the epistle lesson, so you can review a couple times through the course of the day. Um, this morning we read Colossians 1, 1 through 10, I think it was. Um, but let, take a look at this review paragraph. Um, this is what has happened so far, and it's all, it's all prefatory material, introductory material. Paul is um, laying the foundation for what he is going to give as instruction to the Colossians, um, what he wants them to learn um, based on what they've, already, what they've already learned, what they already know. So he begins with this prayer um, that starts with thanksgiving for the faith and love of the Colossians springing from hope. And the prayer is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, which specifically it means the knowledge of God's saving will, right? That God has transferred them from the, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Knowledge of that saving will... Um, you know, this baptismal life that they have, that God would fill them with that knowledge. And that they then, the Colossians then, would also give thanks for everything the Father has given them in Christ. And that's at the point in Colossians where Paul sets up this, um, this juxtaposition between old creation and new creation. So Christ is not only the head of creation, the, the, the one by whom all things were made, um, but also the firstborn of the dead, so the new creation, which, which comes to us in baptism. Um, he was the one who, who you know, opened the grave and opened the way to everlasting life. So in Christ, the Colossians are to give thanks because Christ has reconciled, or the Father has reconciled the Colossians. You in particular, Paul says. So this is true you know, in general. Christ... Um, created the world and redeemed the world, and for you, he has given, um, to you, he has given this inheritance, this reconciliation, this peace with God. Um, And then last week, or two weeks ago, we talked about how Paul is a minister of that word, a minister of that truth, that gospel truth, um, on account of which he also suffers. Um, But the, the, the hope that he has, the assurance that he has is um, the revelation of this mystery, Christ. Christ um, coming into the world and sacrificing himself for our sins. So that's, that's all foundational material. 
Paul wants the Colossians to keep this in mind. This is the way Paul always approaches these, these letters. He says, remember, remember, keep in mind what you've been taught. Remember, don't forget the gospel that we preached to you. Don't forget. Now, a turning point comes uh, in Colossians 2, verse 6, especially. Is everybody, everybody good? Everybody on board? Any questions? Okay. So in, let me just read to you verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2 here. They're at the bottom of page 1. And this is really... Uh, where the letter turns in a different direction. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So, Paul, Paul's desire for the Colossians is that, basically you can put it this way, he wants them to live like they really are. He wants them to... Um, to be who they are, to exhibit who they are. So what's been accomplished for them is a fact. They are, um, they, they are heirs of eternal life, children of God. But there's this problem that we live in, uh, in a sinful world, in sinful bodies, and we, in some ways, um, and in, in very problematic ways, uh, live two lives, right? So in, in the eyes of God, we are righteous, we're children of God. Um, we're heirs of eternal life. But what we see when we look at ourselves, when we look at each other, is um, the opposite, right? Uh, you know, God works, it works through us, through Christ, to, uh, to, to do good works in the world, but we can, you know, regularly fall, up, fall short. We come up short in, in living as children of God. Um, and so Paul is interested in having the Colossians walk in Christ. Now, there's, there's a couple different ways you can take this. Um, so there's a couple different ways that, that the Christian life is exhibited. One of them is, is the sort of uh, behaving as Christ does. Loving your neighbor, loving God. Um, and this is, in many ways, sort of an ethical kind of treatment, right? So if we're going to walk in Christ, if we're going to live as we really are as Christians, then we ought to love as Christians. We ought to love as Christ loved. And that's a hard thing. Um, and it's, it, whenever Paul talks about this, he once again founds it on what you've already received, just like Pastor Nelson preached this morning, right? So you can't love until you've been loved, right? You can't love your neighbor. You can't live as a Christian until Christ loves you, until he fills you with his love. So Paul always begins that way. Here in Colossians, Paul's a little bit more interested in having the, the Colossians walk as Christians in the freedom that they have as Christians. So Christians are called to love each other, but they're also called to freedom. They're called not to, um, to, to be free to uh, not try and justify themselves before God, not try to be, uh, uh, live up to God's standards in order to be perfect. We're free to receive Christ's perfection and not, we don't have to demonstrate our own before God to receive his salvation. And that's what Paul's getting at here. He wants the Colossians to be free. He wants them to remember the freedom that they have in baptism. And he fleshes that out a little bit as we go along here. But the, the basis for this freedom is what they received. So that word received is terribly important. Um, they received something from Christ, and so Paul wants them to live as though they had actually received it. Um, as though their baptism 
was, did what, what God says it does. It washed them clean um, and, and uh, you know, saves them from the law. Is all this making sense so far? You'll, you'll see how this fleshes out as we, as we go into the next section. Take a look, though, at verse 7. Um, Paul, once again, reminds them of this foundation. And those four, those four red terms, or four red words and phrases rooted and built up and established and abounding. Um, these are all different ways that Paul is using, and really he's, he's mixing a lot of different metaphors. So let's think about this. First of all, they are rooted. The Colossians are rooted sort of like a tree is rooted, right? So um, the, the roots of the tree establish the security, the, the stability of the tree. Um, and they're rooted in Christ, rooted in Christ, in him. So, just as Christ is, uh, you know, utterly reliable, utterly good for his word, keeps his promises, um, never falters, never lets us fail, um, they are rooted in Christ and built up. And this is, uh, it's, it's tough to see in the English here, but this is an ongoing thing. So, they're rooted and being built up. Christ's work among the Colossians is ongoing. It's continual. Um, and established in the faith. So God, this is sort of a technical term for um, demonstrating the legitimacy of something. So their faith, the the legitimacy of the faith that they they hold to is established in them. Um, Christ works in all of these ways, in in all of these different ways to lay the foundation for the, the Christians in Colossae. And what results for them is this abundance of thanksgiving. You may remember from chapter 1 that Paul prayed that the Colossians would, as Paul gave thanks, also give thanks to God the Father, right? So what, what ultimately Paul sees as the, the expression of faith for the Colossians is this thanksgiving, that they would abound in thanksgiving, that it would overflow, that it would pour out um, you know, as, as a result of their faith and their love, um, springing up from this hope. All this language of abundance and, and uh, uh, you know, overflowing is describing the richness with which God deals with his people. But let's take a look, um, turn, turn the page here. Take a look at what Paul is particularly interested in. So I got those three boxes. Yes. Oh, that's good to note. Uh, today, as a little digression, we're going to collect an offering for People's Resource Center. So fill up those baskets for People's Resource Center. All right, take a look at the first box. This is verses 8 through 10. Paul wants, to, um, Paul wants to remind the Colossians that they have been freed from the law and especially freed from uh, the particular opponents that, that, uh, that, that are sort of uh, going against what Paul preached. And in one of the... the Challenges, particular challenges for these churches at this time, was the the uh, the teachings of Judaism, the teachings of the synagogue, right? That Christians, if if you're going to be a child of Abraham, you need to be circumcised. You need to keep track of holy days and feasts. You need to follow purification laws. You need to, um, you know, uh, have sacrifices, make sacrifices. All of these things are a threat to, once again, the freedom of the Christians. So, hear how Paul lays this out. First of all, verses 8 through 10, he says this. 
He's warning them, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So if you look at those three green phrases, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits, according to Christ, what's really the problem? What's, what's the risk that they'll be taken captive? What's, what's the problem here? In what way might they be taken captive? Any, can you summarize that? What's that? Right, yeah, um, and in particular, in particular, the risk that they would follow what men teach as opposed to what God teaches, right? This is the unique thing about the Christian faith, the unique thing that Paul proclaims to the Colossians. So in, um, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says to the Corinthians, I proclaim to you, what I received from Christ, what I received from God. So it's not that some man or some group of people came up with this teaching, with this instruction, but it comes from Christ. Um, and this was one of the challenges with, with the Jewish faith at this time, in particular, is that what God had given to the people, the Torah, the law, the commandments, had been sort of perverted, it had been turned and manipulated into human rules, human traditions. A great example of this, um, if you have a Bible handy, open up to Mark chapter 7. We hear about this in Mark. Jesus is talking with um, the scribes and the Pharisees. And they saw, verse 2 of Mark 7, that some of his disciples ate with hands that were unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the, to the traditions of the elders. And the, the scribes and the Pharisees you know, look at Jesus and say, how can, this, how can this be? You're not holding to these traditions. And what Jesus says is, this people, he quotes Isaiah and says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So that the... Lynchpin here is the question that we always ought to ask, um, and we, we, have to, we have to keep track of this um, as, as we live our lives. Who are we listening to? Are we listening to God, or are we listening to men? Um, and, and especially in the context where Paul is not seeing the Colossians face-to-face, where he can't, uh, he can't you know, offer continual instruction, there's always the risk that they'll be misled by the teachings of men. And Paul... So he, he, he hits, drives this point home. What you believe is according to Christ, according to what God has given, as opposed to according to human tradition. Okay? Does that make sense? It's pretty, I, I, it's pretty straightforward, but for the Colossians, it is utterly important. It's, it's, it's essential. Um, there, there are lots of different things that they're hearing, um, but they need to return to what, what God tells them. Yeah, that's right, right. Um, it, yeah, the, the story is that Peter is um, eating with the, those who uh, believe that circumcision is necessary for salvation, and he refused to eat with those who were uncircumcised. And Paul comes along and says, You're, how can you 
who are a Jew make those live like Jews who are, um, who are not Jews when we don't, when we don't abide by these, these regulations any longer either. Good, yeah. Byron. Another thing to be extrapolated to today is that instead of just following the traditions blindly, uh, ask why are we doing it? Yeah, absolutely. This, this church, unlike most churches that I attended, they really, especially when they go to this class and they do the heavy lifting, yeah. explain why we're doing things. A lot of the other churches, oh. you know, why do you know we have this or why do we do that? Or right. Why, walk in with, or why are there six candles on the altar? Yeah. None of that was known. We just that's just what was there. Right. So maybe it's a, a guide to us today to look into why you're doing things. Absolutely. Yeah, and th this is this pertains. Um, this has everything to do with Christian freedom, with the freedom that we have as Christians. So if, um, if you are afraid of asking questions, if, you, if, if things have to be kept in the dark, if there have to be secrets, then we're, we're going in the opposite direction of Christ, right? Uh, light and darkness have nothing to do with each other. This doesn't mean, of course, that there are, that there are no hard things or difficult things or difficult questions, but... Um, we are given the freedom to ask questions and, um, and to engage with all of God's word uh, for our benefit. We don't have to be afraid of these things. And, and this, is, this is one of the things that characterizes the difference between um, the, the religion of the law, religion which says you have to do certain things in order to be, to be in God's favor, to be saved, and, and religion of the gospel. Christianity, which tells you that Christ has done everything for you. If, you. if you are constantly in fear, if you're constantly uh, anxious about being good enough, then everything is done in the darkness. You have to hide things. You can't live in the light. But we as Christians live in the light. Everything that we do is before you. It's, um, and, and it's open to... to uh, to scrutiny, it stands the test. We're asked to judge the difference between, uh, between good and evil, and God gives us his gospel to do that. Good, good note. Um, anything else here? Yes, what please. It's a, that's a good question. Um, it's a uh, I'll start by saying it's a little bit ambiguous. It's not, it's not exactly clear. Um, the word there has to do with things that are basic, building blocks. Um, it's the same word that we sort of use in chemistry for, for elements. It's the same thing. It seems to be that um, one of the, in addition to the, the threat of Judaism, there was also the risk of um, worshiping gods who were sort of represented by the elements. So uh, you can think of like, a, real broadly, like a sun god or this, you know, worshiping the seasons, worshiping deities that represent the seasons. And the, the, the thing is, once again, what, what characterizes the, that kind of worship is, um, you know, superstition. You have to get things right. You have to, you have to uh, leverage God. You have to manipulate him. And uh, one, once again, this is opposed to Christ. This is the opposite of how, how things work in Christ. So th does the reference to uh, elemental spirits and essentially pagan worship, does that tell us then that uh, the recipients of this epistle are not only the Jewish Christians, which is why he mentions um, human tradition, but also the coming, like Gentiles? Coming I th well, I th I, it seems that the, the audience is largely Gentile, but, but, they, but there's, it seems like there are these two forces at work. Um, and it, Paul doesn't ever really make it explicit, but the, it does seem that there, those are those two, the, 
the two things he's particularly concerned about. And here, um, the, the great risk is that the, that the Colossians will, um, that they'll, they'll lose their access, the, the, the confidence they, that they have in approaching God. So if they have to approach God by means of human tradition, by fulfilling the, the traditions of the elders, or if they have to approach God by superstition, by, by uh, you know, rites that, uh, to appease the gods, um, then, they, uh, then they lose what Christ has given them, access to God, uh, the ability to approach God and receive his benefits. Um, and this is what, what Paul gets at here, 9 and 10. He says, it, this is a tricky sentence, he says, For in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So first he's saying that Christ is all God, all of God. There's no, Christ is not sort of a lesser God. He's not just partly God, but he is the fullness of the deity, right? In, in bodily form, in, in human form. Um, and you have been filled in him. So Christ, what Christ is, fills you. Right? So a, a, the juxtaposition here is stark. So if, through, if you have to approach God through human tradition or by appeasing the elemental principles, then, then, you're, then God is holding you at a distance. But if Christ, who is God, is in you, fills you, then you have no, there's no, there's no barrier between you and God. Right? Um, and this is, this is what the, the Colossians risk losing if they, if they follow after traditions or if they, they, they don't go in the way according to Christ, if they don't walk, if they don't walk in him. So you can see the, the distinction here. Paul, when he says he wants the Colossians to walk in Christ, um, of course he's interested in them living as Christians, but he's also especially in them, interested in that they live in the freedom of Christians, right? They're not, they, don't have to, uh, they don't have to follow after these, after these other traditions. Um, they live according to Christ. Okay? Make sense? Good. Let's see. Let's see what else we have here. Um, let's move on to verses 11 and 12. So it, in verses 8 through 10, it's, it's access to God. It's the ability to approach God that, that they risk losing. Look at verse, verses 11 and 12. Um, here, the question has to do with their... Um, their qualification to be sons of God. Remember, back in chapter 1, Paul says that God the Father qualified them to share in this inheritance. They were given the, the ability to be sons because God the Father qualified them. They risk losing that qualification if they follow after other ways, if they, follow, if they don't walk in Christ. Not because uh, they are made ineligible, but because they disqualify themselves. Right? If they, listen, listen to what Paul says here, verses 11 and 12. In Christ also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So they were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Uh, what's the problem with that? How does, why, is, why does that raise an issue? 
What, what good does a circumcision made without hands do? Yeah, right. Right. Take a look at, let's see, I'll, let me read for you. Um, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, Moses writes this. Chapter 30, verse 6. Um, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So circumcision made with hands is, is the sign of the covenant. This is the sign that God has chosen the people of Israel to be his children. This is what, this is what qualified, the sign that the people were qualified to be heirs of Abraham, to, re to receive the promises of God. But what's revealed in Christ is that that sign was a shadow, a foreshadowing of the, the, the qualification that God is really interested in, circumcision of the heart. Um, putting off of this, the sinful flesh and putting on Christ. Um, so the, the synagogue would tell the Christians at Colossae that they need to be circumcised. Paul says, you've already been circumcised. Not a circumcision made with hands, but the, the, the genuine circumcision, circumcision of the heart, um, which, which consists in putting off uh, putting off what is uh, putting putting off the body of flesh. If you think about what happens in baptism, it used to be we don't we don't do this any longer. But it used to be that um, uh, a baptismal candidate would would come um, wearing certain garments. They would take them off as they were baptized or before they were baptized, and they would put on a baptismal gown after they were baptized. And that that was uh, to to symbolize to demonstrate what is going on in baptism. Um, they were taking off the old, the sinful flesh, that which, which earned them condemnation, and they were putting on a new garment, the righteousness of Christ. Um, that was something that circumcision made with hands could never accomplish, right? So actually cutting off your flesh doesn't do you any good. It's circumcision of the heart, circumcision carried out by Christ that saves you. Um, and this, this, Paul makes this explicit. This is a great, a great passage for um, understanding what we teach about baptism. Paul makes this explicit. He says, you were buried with Christ in baptism. This is when this occurred. You were buried with Christ in baptism, and you were raised with him through the working of God. So, in addition to uh, um, taking off a garment and putting on a new garment, uh, many old baptismal fonts, uh, had steps. Maybe you've seen the pictures when Dr. Just has come to visit. Um, you, have, you have steps leading down into the font and then steps coming up on the other side. So the, the, the candidate would go down into the water, was buried with Christ, um, and along with their old flesh. And they would come out the other side raised with Christ. Um, this, this, this motion of death and resurrection, um, of being raised to new life, this is what is carried out in baptism. This is what the circumcision made without hands is all about. And we had a great example of that this morning <laughs> in, in, the, in the divine service. Any questions? Everybody good there? All right. Let's keep moving. Um, the, so just, as a, just so you know where we're going, next week 
I'm going to teach again, and then the subsequent week, the new vicar is going to finish up the Bible study. We may not get through everything, um, but, but let's keep moving just to, to keep, uh, keep the pace up and so we don't get bogged down. But verses, uh, verses 13 through 15 um, is sort of the third, thing, the third thing that Paul is concerned about. So the first one, verses 8 through 10, was that they would give up their, their access to God, their ability to approach God um, because Christ lives in them. Second one was that they would give up their, their inheritance, that they would forget about their qualification through this circumcision made without hands. And the third thing here in this third box, this verses 13 through 15, is that they would forget that they're free from, uh, from the burden of the law, from the condemnation of the law. Um, and Paul makes, Paul makes this as clear as can be. He says, And you, who were dead in your trespasses, and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So they were unqualified, completely unqualified to be children of God. They were dead in trespasses. They had broken the law. They had done what they were not supposed to do. They were disobedient. They were, they were excluded from the, from the people of God because of their trespasses and because they were uncircumcised. They, they didn't meet that qualification of being children of Abraham either. They were dead in their trespasses and the uncircumcision of, of their flesh. You, God made alive together with him. God is the agent. God is the one who is fixing this problem. And he does it by this, in this way. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities by putting them to open shame, by triumphing them over them in him. And the, the picture of um, the condemnation of the law being nailed to the cross is, is central to Christianity. This is why we have a crucifix in the center of, of the sanctuary, right? That is where your salvation was carried out. On that cross, your sins, the curse of your sins, your condemnation was nailed with Christ. Um, Paul writes about this in a couple other places and, and, and very helpfully tells us how this happened. Gives us sort of the mechanics of it. I want to I read for you from Galatians chapter 3. Paul writes this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And then also in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, For our sake, God made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So it wasn't just that, that Christ was nailed to the cross um, as uh, some sort of appeasement, as some sort of generic appeasement, that, he just, that it made God happy to kill his son, right? That's not what happened. Christ took our sins on himself. He became, in fact, the curse. He, he took on the curse of the law and became sin, bore sin, and that was what was nailed to the cross in Christ. It's this, it's this great exchange. So Christ took on our unrighteousness. We take on his righteousness. Our sin was nailed to the cross. We rise with Christ in glory. Um, and if, if you lose that, if you lose sight of that, this is... This is, everything's in this basket. If you lose sight of that, um, you lose everything. Uh, all of these things, all of these verbs in this, this section, so for, forgiveness our trespasses, canceled the record of debt, 
He set aside these things. All of these words are words of freedom, right? The burden has been removed. You're no longer under this curse. You're no longer weighed down by it. Um, and so hopefully the picture is becoming clear of what Paul is conveying here. If you forget about these things, then you live your life a certain way. If you forget that, that the fullness of the deity dwells in you through Christ, or if you forget that you are an, a child of God through the circumcision made without hands, or if you forget that the curse of the law, the burden of the law has been nailed to the cross, then you live your life a certain way. You live as though you had... You, you, you live in fear. You live in suspicion. You're, you, you're afraid of God. Um, you're afraid of what you owe God. So this is why Paul spent so much time in the introduction to his letter laying that foundation. Remember these things. Remember this so that you can live according to this, so that you can live in a manner that reflects what's true. Right? Christ dwells in you. You are children of God. You are free from the law. So live like that. That's what Paul wants the Colossians to gain from, from this letter. Okay. And, yes, sir. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, it's, it's important to think about why Paul needs to be... It, so, I mean, Paul says it basically in three different ways here, and he has been saying it since the beginning of the letter. So, maybe a good question to ask would be, why does he have to do that? Why does Paul say it in so many different ways and um, so emphatically. Yeah. The, the, the risk is so great. The risk is so great and um, the, the, the enemy is so persistent. Right? So it's not that um, the synagogue or Judaism uh, it, you know, is, is trying on its own to destroy Christianity, but Satan is using, is working through what, what, what's familiar, what, the, what their neighbors are doing, what, uh, is, is, uh, what's, what is compatible with their own sense about things. Satan works through those things to, to try and take them away. Um, and, and this is characteristic, the way Paul writes here is characteristic of the way God works for Christians, for, for his church. So, if you think about the, the, the many, many different ways God comes to us and gives us his grace, um, it's not just because it's, it's he feels like it, but it's because we need it, right? So he comes to us in baptism and, and gives us adoption as sons. He comes to us through the preached word so that we hear and, be, and understand and believe. Um, and then I, I probably told you before this great Luther quotation about um, the importance of the Lord's Supper. He says, if only you knew how many, how many flaming darts and arrows Satan has pointed at you, you would, think you would, you would come constantly to the Lord's Supper. So in, this, in, this, uh, in another way, com- God comes to us with his grace. He comes to us with his grace also as we love each other, um, as we receive the love that Christ has for us through his church. Um, and once again, it's not just because he feels like doing it in different ways, but it's because he needs to. Because we need it. Because the risk is so great. Okay. Any questions there? All right. Well, good. We're making great headway. Let's take a look. Oh, you know what? There's, there's one other thing we should say here. Um, at the, at, in verse 15, Paul sort of tacks on this um, comment about disarming the rulers and authorities. Um, and so this is, in, this is in line with forgiving sins and canceling the debt and setting aside 
the punishment and disarming rulers and authorities. And the, the question that's at stake is still the question of who, who are you listening to? Who do you listen to? Who is, who is your head? Who is in authority over you? Um, and, you know, all kinds of authorities, rulers and authorities in the world claim to have, you know, all authority, claim to be um, the final word. What Paul says here is, is quite simple. No, Christ is the one who is the head over all rule and authority. And here he disarms that rule and authority so that we're subject only to him. And, you know, the, the great thing about subjectivity to Christ is that it means we receive his gifts. It's, we're, not, we're not slaves. We would be slaves to the rulers and authorities in the world, but we are freed in Christ. Um, he is, he is uh, our Lord. Okay, let's move on then. Um, in, beginning in verse 16, Paul gets really specific now. Um, so there's the general principle. Keep in mind these, th- these three things. And now verse 16, um, he, he lays it out specifically. Therefore, on account of this, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And that's really the theological point which we have to, which we have to carry through here. Um, these things, the, the Old Testament law was not, was not a bad thing, right? It was not, it, it serves a purpose, a good purpose of being a shadow of the things to come, of, of pointing us, directing, directing the people of God ahead to Christ. Um, but the substance belongs to Christ, and so when Christ comes the need for the shadow is no, longer, is no longer there, right? So if you're looking at, so suppose you have, the image of a shadow is great. Suppose you have an object and all you can see is the shadow. What do you see? Um, you don't see color. You, don't, you see a two-dimensional shape. You see the profile, right? You can't, you don't, you can't make out the details. Um, and once the, the object is in view, the, the shadow doesn't give you any more information, right? The shadow doesn't help you at all. It's been, it's been put away with. It doesn't, it's not needed anymore. Those things were a shadow of the things to come. Um, the substance belongs to Christ. So it, it's important for the, the Christians in Colossae to recognize what exactly Paul is saying. Um, he's not saying that, that uh, God, God was unfaithful to his people, never gave them the truth, that he misled them. What he's saying is, Everything that happened so far has been pointing to Christ, has been leading to this, this time when we get to worship Christ in, in spirit and truth. The, it, um, Jesus says, you know, many, many prophets and righteous men longed to see the things that you see. Um, we get to see the fulfillment in Christ. Okay. All right, it's awfully quiet. Am I putting you to sleep? I think I am. Okay. Let's keep going. Um, we have, oh, just two more minutes here. Oh, job. thanks, Marge. You're going to give me a big head. Okay, so now um, verses 18 and 19. We'll finish up this, these two verses, and then we'll call it quits for today. Um, you hear again here the language that Paul has been using so far, and um, he summarizes again. Let no one disqualify you. So if you, if, if you listen to what they're saying, if you listen to those who lay these restrictions and these these obligations on you, they're trying to disqualify you. Let no one disqualify you. You are qualified. You are children of God. 
insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So again here, the question at stake is, who are you listening to? So it, it might be that you are threatened by listening to um, human tradition. Here Paul says, it's not about visions and you know, ecstatic experiences. It's not about you know, being more spiritual, right? Having more spiritual experiences. It's about being rooted, connected to Christ, who is the head. So if... Uh, if you let go of the head, if you don't get your life from the head, who is Christ, you get it from somewhere else, uh, the body falls apart. Um, which is, and this description of, this description of the church is, is so helpful for us. This isn't, about, this isn't about just you and me as individuals, but this is about the life of the body of Christ, the church, which is, um, you know, knit together, nourished by Christ um, in every part great and small, modest and immodest. The, the, the growth comes from God, and this is what he uses to sustain us. Um, so Paul is once again, in, in all of these different ways, saying, uh, hold fast to the things that you've been taught. Remember what you know. Remember what you are, who you are, um, and behave in a, in a manner that, that is compatible with that, that corresponds to that. Um, and that's, that's sort of the tricky thing. Um, it's sometimes it's easy to remember and hard to act, hard to behave in a manner that, that corresponds to what we know. Um, and that's what Paul's doing here. It's encouragement. Remember these things so that you can live as Christians. Okay, any questions? All right, we'll pick it up again next week. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.